Fireflies Unite with Kia, your weekly podcast from the perspective of individuals thriving with a mental illness. We are normalizing the conversation about mental health within communities of color to foster mental wellness and empowerment. Welcome to another episode of the Fireflies Unite podcast with Kia, where our mission is to bring light into darkness, just like the fireflies, by simply sharing the stories of people of color who live and thrive with a mental illness, and of course, y'all know, to normalize the mental health conversation. I am super excited to be back with you all. My days are just kind of running together and my body is having a hard time keeping up with my mind. So I need to plan some time to just rest and do absolutely nothing. It's been so hard to have days where I don't do anything. And even if I can't have a full day where I don't do anything, I try to at least get a few hours in. But y'all, as I've stated before, there are so many great things in the pipeline. And I just wanted to announce to let you all know that if you are in the D.C. area, and even if you're not, you can come right on down. I'm speaking at the Hillfest Global Conference. It'll actually be in Silver Spring, Maryland, and it is May 4th. I will leave the link in the show notes so that you can get your tickets. Y'all, you do not want to miss this. It's going to be an awesome, awesome conference where there will be a therapist talking about relationships, saying, you know, what happens after you say I do. And there will be a yoga instructor. There will be someone talking about holistic healing. There, my session will be on life and recovery after surviving suicide. There are so many sessions and it's really pertaining to your health and your wellness as a whole. So your mental, physical, spiritual, and emotional health. There's no other conference that's like this that's actually happening, at least that I know of. So I'm super excited and super blessed to be a part of it. So again, I hope to see you at Hillfest on May 4th. Also, you guys, I'm I'm getting closer to having a, a date for the book. I cannot wait to announce it. I've been working on it and finalizing things right now. So it's with the editor and the book covers being created. It will definitely, definitely be out next month. So y'all please stay tuned for that. I cannot wait to share. Like I said, I'll also have a few book signings coming up within the next few months. So there are some awesome things that are in the works and I'll be sure to keep you guys posted. Last week we talked about, what did we talk about last week? Last week we interviewed the doctors, the pulse of perseverance. Like I really enjoyed speaking with them. Y'all, I need to know what did you guys think about last week's episode? I thought it was really important to have three black men who are doctors on the podcast because it matters for our black boys, for them to see other black men who are not just rappers, entertainers, and athletes. Now, that's not saying that there's anything wrong with that. That's great to have that as a goal, but it's also important for our black boys to have their minds expanded to see what other careers are out there that can help them to be, that will allow them to be extremely successful and to make a lot of money. 
because as you know, a lot of times people are always doing things for money. I often disagree with that approach, but for people who are driven by money, it's great to have a career that makes a whole lot of money, but I believe in doing something that makes you happy. And I truly do believe the money will come, but let me know what you guys thought about last week's episode. And I also just want to encourage you all to please leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you have not. And also please leave a rating that will be extremely helpful for me so people can find find the podcast and the podcast just can be more visible. So you guys, those are all my announcements. I'm just knocking them out in the beginning. And also for the mental mental health news segment, I just really wanted to take this time to send my thoughts and prayers to everyone impacted by Nipsey's death. Um, I'm pretty sure if you guys are listening to the podcast, you probably already heard about about it because it's been all over social media. And honestly, y'all, I didn't know who he was until, unfortunately, he was shot and killed um, about two weeks ago. But a lot of people are being impacted by it, whether they knew him personally or did not. And so my heart and my thoughts and my prayers really go out to everyone who's impacted by it. What I will do is I will leave a podcast in the show notes so that you can refer back to it. Uh, Dr. Joy of Therapy for Black Girls, she actually talked about, did a podcast episode on grieving someone you may not have known or been close to or like why are you grieving someone you may not have had a close relationship with but I thought that was really really important and so I just wanted to take a moment to to highlight that for the mental health news because grieving in any form of loss it certainly does impact our mental health as we all know grieving can eventually lead to someone going into a depression and so many other emotional and mental health challenges and so I just really wanted to take this time again to send my thoughts and my prayers and to share that information with you all and again like I said I'll leave that episode from Dr. Joy in the show notes so that you can refer back to it. Nipsey Hussle he was a activist he was an entrepreneur he was a father he was engaged to Lauren London he was a son He was just really a person that was about making sure that the L.A. community was taken care of. He truly was a culture shifter as far as actually giving back into the community. So not just, you know, people making it out of the hood and having a a large or a huge amount of success and kind of running away. He reinvested his money back into his community He will truly be missed by his family, his friends, and his fans. He truly was a change agent. And I just wanted to take this time to honor his life. Not so much focusing on the tragedy, but again, a person who actually lived and left a legacy. It is my hope that I will be able to have such a powerful impact as much as he did. And so, again, I just wanted to take this moment to highlight his life and not necessarily focus on his death. He was truly an amazing man from from everything that I saw on social media. So many people were impacted by the life that he lived. And so what I want to encourage you to think about 
what type of life, what type of legacy do you want to leave? How do you want people to remember you? So if today was your very last day on this earth, what would you be remembered for? What type of legacy do you want to leave behind? So for this week's episode, you guys, I am super pumped about this week's episode. And here's why, because in this episode, we are speaking with Anita Washington, and she is amazing. She has a talk show. She has a podcast. She does so many. She's a speaker. She's an author. Like she is just the bomb.com. And so we connected initially through a mutual person and then we wind up connecting on social media. I was also interviewed on her TV show. She's just, y'all, I I, I just, I'm gonna just, we're just gonna get into this interview. But before we jump into this interview, in this episode with Anita, we are talking about family relationships. We're talking about childhood trauma and how it impacts us going into adulthood and the title of her book is family is not everything and y'all when I say that book is amazing like it's beyond amazing like I could not it was so hard for me to put the book down and she talks about the things that she experienced as a child and how she decided to remove herself from family from certain family members And a lot of times people, they often try to guilt us into like, oh, why you want to, you don't want to talk to them because that's your mother or you don't want to talk to them because that's your sister. Not realizing how just because someone has a specific title in your life, such as grandmother or grandfather, if they're causing damage to you, that's impacting your mental and emotional health and they're not willing to address their issues and they're not willing to realize how the things that they're doing are impacting you. You don't have to have them in your life. You can love them from a distance or you can um, you can love them from a distance or you can just completely cut them off or you can limit how much you see them. But I think it's really important that we realize that. And I don't know how it goes for other communities, but I know in the black community, we really do give. I don't actually know. It's not the black community, just in society as a whole. Titles mean a lot. You know, certain job titles mean a lot. Family titles mean a lot. And we put so much weight on it. And sometimes people who are people who have the privilege of having specific titles, they shouldn't be allowed in our lives or they shouldn't have access to us because of how they treat us and how they make us feel. But again, because of that title, we choose to have them in our lives. I really want you guys to listen carefully to this episode with Anita and let me know your thoughts, you guys. Please let me know on social media. Please be sure to send me an email or DM. Let other people know about it. Send it in a text message because I truly believe that this episode will hit home for a lot of you guys. So let's get into this episode. Well, welcome to the podcast, Anita. I'm like super, super excited to (laughs) talk to you because... I think Sharon connected us yeah. before. Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think she t- told you about me because I think she did your, sh- um, you interviewed her on your show, right? Right, on, right, on that, I need a lot of TV show, yeah. And then we connected and then you interviewed me. And then I remember telling Sharon, I was like, yeah, when I was, when Anita was interviewing me, like, 
she was like getting like I remember you like tearing or like getting a little emotional and I was just like yeah I just and then Sharon was like girl do you know about her story did you read her book and I was like no I was like no she was like she was like well I got a copy do you want to read it and I was like wait I don't think I'm ready to read it just yet by that response (laughs) and so I was like I was like no it's okay I'm I'm," I was like I'm gonna wait and she was like oh okay well let me know when you're ready but she has a really um positive (laughs) powerful story real you know some like like we discussed during your interview on my show and where when people say oh my favorite show didn't come back on i'm depressed you're like that is not even what that applies to so you know real recognize real let me say that yeah i think yeah i've heard so many so many things and i people often use it as a synonym for sadness why of Mm -hmm. course people when they, as you know, with, you know, your background, when people experience depression, they've certainly experienced sadness, but it's like a persistent sadness that actually never goes away. Um, And then sometimes I know for myself, it got to the point where I was feeling numb and I actually really didn't feel sad at, at some point. Um, So I remember I, I had wrote this, I wrote a status on Facebook earlier this week and it made me think about your book. And I had said like one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is just because people change, it doesn't mean that I have to allow these people back into my life because when you've worked so hard to have peace in your life, you also Mm -hmm. remember the, the days when you didn't have peace or joy And so everything, so you do everything in your power to protect it. And I was saying how I have the right to grant permission and deny access to every single person in my life. I don't Mm -hmm. care if we're family. I don't care if we're long-term friends. But if you threaten the harmony in my life, you cannot have access to me. And it, you know, it, and I think it's when I was reading your book and I was just like, It was just confirming like the work that I have been doing and and the wholeness that I have been experiencing because I was like, it doesn't matter if the person is, if they're family or friends, if they threaten your peace and your joy, then they shouldn't have access to you. You have to protect your mental health because some of us are out here being loyal to people for nothing. It's like, oh, I'm being loyal to them because I've known them for so long or because they're my brother. Like it just, it doesn't matter. And so I was just like, wow, I, Mm. I'm proud of the progress that I've worked really, really hard to experience wholeness because it's like when you're operating from a broken place, as you know, sometimes we may not realize we're broken and like all of the decisions and our thoughts and um, the patterns that we have are very unhealthy because they're from a broken place, but we don't actually realize that. So I remember when you, in your book, you said that um, healing is your responsibility, even though you weren't the one to cause the hurt. So can you right. elaborate uh-huh. on that? Because the life that you experience is up to you. It's your responsibility to one, heal yourself and clean off that space. And then two, as you were just, just describing, to respect it. 
So no matter who came into your life or at what age or what they did, that person has moved on with their life and are probably now in a state where they are harming or abusing somebody else. You can't sit there and stay stuck in the past of this is what has happened to me or this is his fault or this is her fault. Fault and blame doesn't matter when happiness and healing is what you're after. Mm. I just had to pause for a moment and let that let that marinate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's so true because mm-hmm. I, you know, remember a few years back, this is when I was living in California. And I remember reaching out to my father who spent most of my life in and out of jail. He spent more time in jail than he did in my actual life. And I remember writing him a letter and just expressing, you know, how I was upset and hurt by him being absent. And at that particular time, I used to feel like my father chose chose his drug addiction over me. Now mm-hmm. that I'm operating in a different space, I understand that addiction is a disease. Like it's a sickness. Now that doesn't mean that I have to grant my father access and allow him to take advantage of me or not hold him accountable for the things that he said. No, it doesn't mean that. But I also understand that people who battle with addiction or of any form, whether it's alcohol or any form of substance, they have to work through that. And so, but I couldn't continue to walk around in my life saying the reason I'm this way is because my dad wasn't in my life. Well, that, while that may be true, but what am I going to do about it now so that I can move forward and heal? And that's, that's like the most important thing. But a lot of times we do get caught up in uh, blaming everyone else for our problems. And then it gets to the point where sometimes we even stop taking responsibility for the self-inflicted wounds that we cause based off of being broken. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it does. And the thing is, it does not have to be just physical abuse, but verbal right. abuse too. Right. So the verbal abuse, the emotional abuse, really it comes down to anything that somebody does on a continuous basis that makes you feel bad. So if it's teasing and it goes on for a long period of time, you ask the person to stop, you've explained to them how it makes them feel, and they continue to do it. It could be just about weight. It could be about your skin color or complexion. It could be about the size of the nose on your face. It doesn't matter. That person then crosses over into an abusive state because they're continuously chipping away at your self-esteem, your self-worth, and your self-value. And nothing in your life is worth that. Nothing. No, it's not. And so many times, so let me ask you this. So why do you think we allow people to abuse us, whether verbally, physically, or emotionally, um, whether it's in terms of, let's speak in terms of family, because I know you have a lot of history there that we'll actually get into. But why is it that you think we allow family members to continue to abuse us 
for forever. For some people, they don't even um, like cut the family member off or try to work it out. They just subject themselves to it. One, I think it's the, the pressure of society. And two, it's because we are raised and reared that title is everything. They used to say, no matter what you think of the person, you still had to respect the title. So when you when you lap on titles like mother, father, brother, and then you attach that to things that are very emotional, like holidays, even if it's Mother's Day or if it's Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa, that, that especially from the November, December time frame, from Thanksgiving to Mm. So in the middle of January, people are in such a frenzy of this is family time and, and everybody must do the same thing at the same time. Oh, no, you have to see your sister. Oh, no, you have to see your mom for the holidays. And then they begin the guilt trip. You don't know how much longer she has or you don't know. None of that is worth sacrificing health. And if you've gotten from healing to happiness and you're a whole person, you can feel that difference inside of you, protect that at all costs. Because the truth comes down to if the people in those titles were adhering to the respect level that, that comes with the title, if they were adhering to how they're supposed to treat other people according to that title, it wouldn't be a question. Even if you want to get into priest and preacher and rabbi and imam, if you want to get into those, it's the same thing with the level of respect that is attached to it. And then society reinforces that by saying the words you have to. And that's not true. Ooh. Mm, <laughs> like, oh my gosh. So a lot just came up. But the first thing that I immediately thought about is. The relationship with your mom. Um, can you talk about how, I mean, people have to get the book, so we're not going to get into all the detail, but <laughs> can you talk <laughs> about the relationship with your mom and how, what eventually led you to make the decision to distance yourself from your, from your mom? My mom in particular, the relationship with her was very contradictory. First, the first thing to understand is that as a child, when you view things from a child perspective, you're experiencing things for the first time each time. And I'm a person that is that I have, I have a fairly good memory and I connect dots. So in growing up, where she would say that uh, family is very important and we have to be at the family reunion or we have to be at your brother's football game at the same time. I cheered for years and she never saw me cheer once. She would say, you know, we were in church. I'm Catholic. So we were in mass every Sunday, like clockwork. But then when it came to living on the word or adhering to the Bible, it was more so tradition than anything else. My father being a homicidal alcoholic, when I got old enough to ask the question, why don't you just leave? She said, because, you know, marriage is forever. And I'm thinking, but you're putting yourself in danger. Well, you don't understand. You're young. When you get older and fall in love, you'll understand. How about what I understand is, <laughs> even as a child, because the first time I ran away, I was five years old. 
Mm-hmm. I remember that. <laughs> I mean, I, don't, I wasn't there, but I wasn't. I don't think right. I was born uh-huh. when you were five. <laughs> <laughs> but it was. I mean, it, it was. It, it's great to hear that because then that means that I wrote it in such a way that you could actually see it happening as you read it. Mm-hmm. I could, and that that was that's one of the things that I was going after. But back to your question about my mom. So as I got older and those contradictions played out more and more in different situations, like if her son told her not to not to feed me or not to purchase me food because I didn't adhere to something he told me to do and she did it. No, that's your son. He's my brother, not my father. So and, and again, from a child to a teenager. To, you know, being an undergrad, finally, I got to a place to where. No matter what, no matter what my brother did, my mom was always going to see him as being right. Mm. And I was not going to allow either of them or the relationship they have to cause me any more harm. Because once I was in grad school, I noticed, and I went straight from undergrad to grad, so that gives you a context of how old that I was. I noticed this merry-go-round. Because I was no longer living in the area, I had to travel in and out of where I grew up. Traveling down to my mom's home and then traveling back, this, this transformation happened internally. And I began to notice that when I was there, insulted, belittled, dismissed, just not valued at all. So my emotions and my self-worth and the way that I felt would go down. That's the down with when you're on the horse on the merry-go-round. Then I'd get around my friends, my professors, colleagues, mentors, and I would be built up. And I would be told about all the wonderful things that they knew that I could do. And uh, even though <laughs> I wasn't applying myself in the manner or to the level that they wanted, you know, Washington, you can apply yourself. Washington, you can make better grades. I heard that my entire life. But it felt good to know and to to be seen, to be valued. So there was this merry-go-round. And then finally, in my 40s, I mean, the the going into the ultimate level of disrespect, I just decided that, Anita, this is now your fault. Because you keep returning to your mother's home, knowing that this behavior from her or your brother has not changed. And... What do we call a person that continues to do the same thing over and over, but look for a different result? Insane. Insane. So, Anita, you need to make a choice. Are you going to be healthy and happy or are you going to be insane? And that's the decision right there that I made to go no contact with my family. Was that an easy or a difficult decision to make? For you, it it was a very difficult decision. Even in that that time, it was a difficult decision because my in the book I condensed my brothers. I actually had four. I condensed my brothers down to one so that they could remain anonymous, that I wouldn't have to use individual names. Because I, I really didn't want it to get crazy with four brothers. Even if I use false names, I'm going through an interview or somebody's asking me a question, I'm like, who? What are you talking about? <laughs> So I just condensed it all down into one brother versus the four. Um, When I say I have a very large family, it's because my grandmother had nine sisters. 
So at one point in time, I had over 200 living cousins. And I knew to cut my immediate family off, I was going to have to miss out on a lot of that interaction with my cousins. Because once they found, I cut them off. And there's that frenzy period. If they found out that I was in contact with or speaking to any of those cousins, then that cousin would be forced emotionally to be a thoroughfare. Have you spoken to her today? Where is she? What is she doing? No, that's the information that you no longer get because when you had access to me, you didn't know how to treat me. So it's wrong for somebody else to sit in the middle and say, well, I think they should have it, so I'm going to give it to them. Okay, so that means now that you don't get it because I'm old. I'm getting it. <laughs> I say I'm old all the time. I'm like, what? <laughs> you are not old. I'm- have been waiting to be able to use that term my entire life because old people are so respected and there was so much wisdom and but I've gotten to a point to where I am now prioritizing me nobody else has done that I haven't done that in the past and now my work this this is going to be very flat either you're on or you're off it's black or it's white. There is no gray when it comes to this issue. I am on the opposite end of the spectrum in the sense that now I'm interviewing you on my mm-hmm. podcast and I'm tearing. Ah, uh-uh. <laughs> because, uh-huh. because it's like, I get it. I get it. But for people mm-hmm. who, so for me, When I was released from the hospital, when I was released from the hospital, I made the decision to no longer stay at my mom's house because of the abuse that my mom was experiencing and still currently experiencing from my siblings' dad. And I always say my siblings' dad because. The reason why I do not call him my stepfather is because one, they're not married. And two, he does not, he has to earn the title of stepdad. And -hmm. considering that he's been abusive to my mom and caused me, he did not abuse me directly. But as a result of witnessing domestic violence, it really shaped the person that I become and ultimately was, was built up over time that led to the suicide attempt and led to the reason why I was started experiencing depression at what 11 or 12 years old. So it was a lot to, to, for me to go through as a child and even experiencing like really intense anxiety to the point where I kid you not, Anita, I did not know what it was like to not be anxious because it was so normal Like, I remember when I was at the hospital and the psychiatrist had gave me medication for my anxiety. And a couple hours later, I was like, oh, this how it feels to like, this is what healthy or like, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, normal feels like to not be anxious Mm -hmm. 24 seven. I've never knew what it was like. I like I just couldn't I couldn't fathom. So. Uh, now, granted, that was with the help of the medication, but now that I've been in therapy for close to four years, like 
I've done a lot of internal work that has also helped to help with the anxiety. And so that's what I mean when we, when certain things are normalized for us, we don't even realize that like it's wrong. And I made the decision that, okay, when I go to New Jersey and I'm actually going in less than a week, I don't stay at my mom's house anymore. Yes, that's Mm -hmm. hard because my siblings are there and I'm the oldest of seven. And so those are like my babies, even though they they know their dad and their dad has always been there. I, I naturally took on the role of like second mommy, like those are my babies. So. And I love them and I want to spend time, you know, hang out with them and because they like I mean, most of them are boys. I have one sister and five brothers, so they like oh. staying in the house on the game all the time. So. I was like, I, this is the only way I'm going to be able to spend time with them. So I try to get them to come out, but they are in high school and they just want to play the game. Fine, whatever. But um, but I, I say that to say that was a hard decision for me to make. And at one point, my mom, I remember her feeling, I don't, I guess offended may have been the word, but over time she started to understand, like, she started to understand, but then her being offended eventually it just goes back to her overall just being hurt like wow and then also it also made her have to sit sit with and deal with wow my daughter comes back home to visit but she does not stay at my house so as a mother I can't imagine because I'm not a parent but I can't imagine from a mother's perspective like wow my child doesn't even want to stay in the home that she spent part of her life in we just well i want to say we discussed it a number of times but i I can't say i expressed it to her a number of times and her reactions would be an eye roll and she turn and walk away or there'd be an offer of an appeasement like okay 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 well because i would i would try and go and visit her, but skip my brother. I Like I would tell my mom, look, I can come either before the holiday or after the holiday, but I don't want to be there while he's there. And, I'm, and I can't change him. All I can do is operate my own time. So I can control when I'm there and when I'm not. Can you at least let me know either be, when I can be there before he arrives or after he's gone, so then then I can come down to see you. And it never failed. This was supposed to be negotiated. She agreed. Yes, yes, yes. He's not going to be here. But when I got there, who was there? He was. My brother was. And that happened multiple times. And I would always say, didn't we discuss this? You agreed that I could be here while he wasn't. So why are we having this difficulty? Mm. And all of that, like that, up the first question that you asked me, and what led to the decision, all of those incidents from patterns in the docs that went into the went into the decision. Now, Anita, this is on you, because you keep coming back knowing it has not changed. Yeah, and the thing is, sometimes there are instances where we think that by us being in certain people's lives that we can be the ones to change them. 
But we can't. You cannot make someone change, become a better person if they do not want that for themselves. Right. Like Mm -hmm. healing is up to the person. Like it's up to me to decide I no longer want to operate in a place of brokenness. Now, granted, that wasn't my initial decision when I first started like my mental health journey, because in fact, most people who know my story, they know that I was forced into the hospital. And then over time, I started to want it for myself. But initially, I didn't want it. But now that I'm experiencing something completely different, and I see how it's impacted the relationships that I have, and also for me to determine who I want and don't want in my life. And so now, like when I, I remember at one point, my brother had surgery and he was actually my brother that you met, Sabri, he had surgery. I don't, I think he was 16 at the time. And he was like, are you going to come see me at the hospital? I mean, not at the hospital, at the house. So I said, sure. And it was like, oh, my dad's not here. So I said, okay, I'll go. And I remember he was sitting outside on the porch at my mom's house. But the entire time that I was on the porch and I was with my grandmother and my brother, I was, my anxiety was through the roof. Like I was on edge because I didn't know when his father would like pull up. Return. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my stomach was like, you know, turning and like, I was just like, very just like, this is too like I, it was too much. I was like, there's, there's no peace here. I'm literally sitting on edge the entire time. So I can't even really pay attention and enjoy being in my brother's presence while he's healing and talking to him and just hanging out with him because I'm so worried about when his father's going to come back home. And I wasn't even inside the home. I was outside, but I still could not. I was like, yeah, no, this, this is too much. And I remember my, my grandmother saying, and even my, I think my brother has said too, like, you know, just, just try not to think about it. You know, don't, you know, don't give him that much power. And I'm like, y'all, it don't work like that. Right. Right. Um, so mm-hmm. at that point I made the decision like, okay, yeah, no, I can't even go on the porch when I go to my mom's house. And like, typically I will pick up my little sister. She's 11 and she love spending time with me. So I will pick my sister up and my mom will come see me. But like anyone who comes and see me, they know they have to like leave out of the house and sit in, and sit in the car with me. And I'll talk to them there. Cause at least in my car, I can control that, that space. And like, I remember before my mom said that my siblings dad asked her, why, why doesn't Kia speak to me anymore? Like, why doesn't she stay here anymore? Um, or like when she comes here, there were a few times I may have seen him getting out of the car, like getting out of the car or doing something. And we would like, I would see him. We would kind of lock eyes for a moment, mm-hmm. but I really wouldn't say anything. And so I don't even know if my mom actually told him the reason why, but I know that he asked her what was my reasoning for like this complete change. So. And I'm like, well, I don't care if you tell him or not, but I know I personally don't owe him an explanation. And he has a lot of stuff. Not only is he abusive, like he's addicted to drugs. You know, he, you know, also 
battles with bipolar disorder. So he has a lot of his own stuff. But at the end of the day, this man is well over 50 years old. He mm-hmm. most likely will probably not change. Not saying that there's no hope because people can change at any time. But some people are so stubborn and stuck in their way and so used to operating the way that they're operating that they are content with being the way that they are. So I rem- and I remember talking to my mom and telling her, like, it's it's so interesting now, like having this this, I guess, like awakening is like when my mom is telling me things about my sibling's dad and I like challenge her way of thinking or look at it from a different perspective and, and provide, you know, my, my uh, view on it. Her responses are usually like, I could tell that she's not in a, that she it's hard for her to even make that decision like okay I don't want to be in this relationship anymore mm-hmm. like she says that she doesn't want to be but her actions don't align with what she says right mm-hmm. the contradiction right which is what you talked about and even talking about you when you were talking about like your brother you talked about it a little bit when you said um you know, when your brother would tell your mom, like, oh, she, you know, don't feed her because like, for instance, when you talk about in the book where your brothers, when you were at a restaurant and you were mm-hmm. ordering, your mom was ordering food and yep. your brother expected or and thought that you should be ordering your own food. Mm-hmm. And when you didn't um, address or tell the server what you wanted, you sat at the table with, while your brother and your mom ate. Yep. Mm-hmm. And th- that continued to, that continued to the point where your, you know, your brother was abusive to his, was it his wife or his girlfriend? Yes. And you said he would come like stumbling in the house and like that it was a point in time where you said like he threw you from off the couch to the floor and it, did you like kind of like days out? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when you, then I remember you saying like you got, you got up and then like you left um, the house and you would, there were plenty of times where you like slept on this, like near, was it like near the school or on the school playground? Well, the school that I'm referring to in, in connection to that story is mm, maybe a quarter of a mile, half a mile from the house. So to get up, leave the house, and run back there to that school to have some place that I felt was safe. You know, I had I had to make it back there. Like I said, maybe quarter of a mile, half a mile. Mm. And when I I remember reading this, it's like I could literally visualize in my head a little girl running down, like, down the street and, like, mm-hmm. imagine what, imagine the emotions that you were experiencing and even, like, confiding in you got to the point where you did, you know, you, your mom knew what was happening, but she just kind of brushed it off like, oh, that's just, that's just who he is. You know how he right. is. Mm-hmm. But not saying like, oh my God, this is causing 
very serious harm to my daughter physically, emotionally, and mentally, and just breaking her down as a human at such a little, at such, at just a child. I mean, adults can't even handle this, but I can even just, it's another level when it comes to a child. And so. And it, it, it feeds into a, that Southern mindset in where people believe that no matter what the man does, the woman is just supposed to take it. A lot of times we allow people to do certain to do certain things. And even in terms of, like you said, it doesn't even have to be the household. It could be sometimes where there were priests or who have, you know, molested children. Um, mm-hmm. And we're like, oh, no, that's the priest. You know, we, we can't we can't tell, you know. Right. Right. Because because of all oh, they're called by God or is going to mess up their reputation or, you know, they're a man of God, like all these things that we tell, but then it never holds and never hold the people who are in power or who have these titles and never holds them accountable. And they continue nope. and it just continues on to another person. And that's when you, I remember you saying in your book, like that's how generational curses continue. That's how mm-hmm. poverty continues. And so like, if we're continuing these negative cycles that are destroying people, ultimately we're destroying society because we make up society. And I'm like, I just, I'm so grateful for, well, for me and my relationship with God, just so grateful to be able to redevelop my relationship with God. Because I remember at one point when I was in my darkest days, I didn't even I stopped going to church and I stopped. I didn't want to talk to church people because, you know, I was told to speak in tongues and, you know, that's a big thing for like Pentecostal Mm -hmm. um, churches. And so like, you're not praying, you're not praying good enough. mm -mm. You got to be strong or you don't, or you don't have enough faith. And it's like, y'all, y'all wouldn't tell people who have cancer that, Oh, you're not praying hard enough. Like, no, I always say God puts his super on my natural and together we make supernatural. So natural is me going to therapy and taking my medication as prescribed. That's me doing what I need to do on the natural. But then on the spiritual side, I'm still praying. I'm still reading my word and I'm also being restored through that process. Mm -hmm. And so together, like they work, they work best together, at least for me. And so I'm like, I realized in my journey, I don't have to pick one or over the other. I can pray to God, to Jesus, and I can also go to therapy. I can do them both at the same time. I don't have to pick one over the other. And that has really been part of my mission and me while I'm so transparent about my, you know, about my journey. And even like in terms of you, like, okay, so first I have to ask you this, which I should have asked in the beginning. title of your book is family is not everything like was like did that title just easily come up for you like i i i i assume why i know you named it that but i want you to explain why you uh named your book that well i named it that to fight the stigma that, that people are constantly out here saying family is everything family is everything pushing people 
back into harmful situations. And I want everyone to read the book, become aware, become more well-rounded as to what's going on in the world, and be careful as to who you try and push into situations that make you comfortable because you don't know what you're pushing that person back into. I really wanted family ain't everything, but my my editor wasn't hearing it. (laughs) Uh, It's like, that's not grammatically. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, well, that's how we, that's how we say it. And black people, we say ain't. (laughs) She said, no, we we are going to clean that up. I said, okay, well, family is not everything with emphasis on not. So for people out there that feel as if they have, I know my family's good or my family's perfect because there are some of those. Oh, please don't spread your jelly over everybody else's bread. Mm. Anita, are you going to say that one more time for the people in the back that they can hear you? And then tell them, <laughs> then, then tell them what you mean by that. <laughs> Stop spreading your jelly over everybody else's bread merely because that was your situation that was your childhood that's your relationship with your parent does not mean that it dictates everybody else's relationship or everybody else's life everybody else's household how people's households should run what religion they should be a part of what church they should attend what job they should have you have your jelly and other people we have our bread we have to get up, get out there, and find our own jelly. Yeah. So what works like, for one does not always work for everybody else. Absolutely. Like, man, Anita, you're just so awesome. Like, ah. it's like, <laughs> yeah, people, people don't realize that because they automatically assume, well, this is true for me, and this happened for me, and you know, I grew up this way. So then as a result, everyone else should grow up this this particular way or they should allow this. And what you're doing as a result, like you said, you're, you could ultimately push, push people back into unhealthy situations. But at the end of the day, you don't know what their childhood was like. So mm-hmm. do, and so you're projecting. So don't tell people what they should and shouldn't do and how they live their life. And one of the things that I have learned is when, when someone comes to me about a situation um, and they could be asking for advice sometimes, or sometimes they could just be telling me things to, to listen. But when they do ask for advice, I'm very, um, what's, what's the word? I'm very um, hesitant at first when I give advice because before I give the advice, I usually, and this this is only because of the training that I have been taking for mm-hmm. my, um, before my, I'm working on my certification to uh, be a certified peer recovery coach. So I've been learning to ask questions. So I ask questions as to, you know, why do, why do they think this? Or, um, you know, in a sense, almost similar to what therapists do, they challenge our way of thinking. And it's funny, mm-hmm. I'm laughing internally, but I'm laughing because I remember I told my therapist yesterday, I said, look, I don't like how you're challenging me right now. I'm on to your tactics. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm on to you. I said, I'm not a therapist, but I've been taking a lot of training. And look, I, I some of them, um, 
the um, some of the models that they use, they're um, clinically based. So I'm on to you. I don't like this challenge right now. Um, but, you know, I do. Some, sometimes I ask my friends that because I want them to get to the point in their lives where I'm not saying that what I have is not valuable because it can very well be. But mm-hmm. I want them to get to the point where they're strong enough and they believe in their own decision making and be able to look at things in a different perspective and work on their own wholeness. So then once they are whole, then they will be able to make healthier decisions for themselves versus running to me and expecting me to tell them what they should do. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think that makes it sense. does. Because, but, but I mean, don't sell yourself short because it's also in how you give the advice. Because the same way your therapist is asking you questions and challenging you to see, be exposed, and move to uh, the next spot in your healing process, is that you can use that same interaction with your friends to give advice. When they ask you what would you do, challenge them to think about their own processes and come up with their own decisions. Instead of trying to use somebody else for a scapegoat, people do that all the time. Oh, what would Nita do? Okay, you can't do what Nita would do because if you could, you would have done it already. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, which is a perfect segue to speaking about um, self awareness. Because in your book, you said that raising your awareness helps you know your worth and strengthens your self-esteem. It allows you to decide when to put yourself first, whether or not to keep someone in your life and how much time and space to give someone in your life. And the thing is, what I'm starting to realize, no matter how old people are, there are people who are twice my age and they are not self-aware. Right. And I'm just, and I'm so like, it's like, I'm like, what? Like, cause I've been in therapy and I'm like, okay, I've been in therapy and I have become extremely self-aware now. I don't know. I'm not saying I know every single thing about myself, but I know a lot now because of my work in therapy. And mm-hmm. it, it takes, and the thing is, it's hard work working on yourself. I remember writing on Facebook too, saying that working on myself um, has been harder than both of my degrees combined. And I have a degree from Howard and Georgetown. And that was no easy task. And so, but working on myself was harder than both of, than everything that I did to get those degrees because I've learned to operate. Um, I've learned to operate from essentially, like I said, a broken place. And so everything that I was doing was so normalized and I just didn't even know the whole time I'm thinking my limited thinking was, well, yeah, I don't have daddy issues or trust issues because I'm not out here, you know, sleeping with guys. And I'm like, you know, at at first I, I would, I used to think that like, oh, well, it only showed up in like people being promiscuous, but that's not the only way that it shows up just because Mm -hmm. you have daddy issues. It can show up in so many different ways. And for me, Mm -hmm. it showed up in trust. So one of the things that I would used to do is, boy, I was slick with cutting people off. And I would think like, yeah, I don't have no problem cutting people off. Uh-uh. 
you know, but it wasn't it, it wasn't operating from the same space now. Now, granted, yeah, now I would distance myself and cut people off if I've had multiple conversations with them and I explain to them how something makes me feel and they continue to do it and they don't respect the boundaries, then yeah, okay, th- that's different. But before it was no conversation. It was nope. I don't care what you got to say. I don't care what you thinking. And sometimes I'm pretty sure I could have been the one that was doing, that was um, maybe not doing something right or the wrong way that could have impacted someone else. But before I didn't care, it was just like, nope, you made me feel a certain way, so you got to go. Um, so there's a difference in terms of like, depending on, because I remember having this conversation with my cousin and she was like, you yeah, know, I don't care. I don't have the time I cut. I, you know, I just cut people off. And I said, well, are you cutting people off because they're challenging you? that will make you think about things in a different way and ultimately help you continue to grow? Um, or are you cutting people off because they're unhealthy and they're continuing to do things um, after you've explained to them? So there's it's there's a huge difference. And she was like, oh, I don't care. I don't, I don't care about all that. I don't, I don't have time for that. I just cut them off. And I was just like, hmm, okay. So in terms of uh, becoming self-aware, can you speak to how how someone can even know what their worth is and the first step to even becoming, to starting the process to become self-aware? Well, in the book, I list maybe 10, 12 questions that are the surface of becoming self-aware. Because you need to be able to understand yourself from the perspective. Why did I make that decision? Why did I make that choice? From the clothes you buy, the vehicle, the neighborhood you live in, whether or not you choose to have kids, all of that is connected to something that has already happened to you. You've been exposed to something you've learned. You are a total being in a ball, but everything in a ball is is inclusive. It's already inside. So when you make an outward decision, it's because of what you have going on internally. You can Mm -hmm. only change what is going on in your life when you understand why you make the decisions and choices that you do. Wait, say that one more time. You can only change what's going on outside of you, what's going on in your life when you understand what's going on inside of you. Mm-hmm. Like the clarity that you mentioned, when you first felt the difference between having anxiety and not having anxiety. That's the clearness. Because I, I have a friend, she is on her, oh, she's on her fourth divorce. And then the same conversation she would talk about her fifth wedding. Oh, wow. But why is it that she keeps making, and I'll call it this one mistake. Yes, there's a lot that goes into a marriage. Yes, there's a lot in a relationship. But this one, this one mistake is in this area of her life. Married, divorce, married, divorce, married, divorce. Now, she figures out what it is in her childhood, in her young adult, her her. her her 20s even that caused her to make snap decisions to say uh this marriage is over and I'm out because she's 
made the, the decision to divorce in each one of those relationships. It wasn't the guy that she was with. It was her that made the decision, okay, this is over. We're getting a divorce. And it wasn't drugs and it wasn't infidelity. If she can take a hold of what it is that has happened to her that causes her to make such sad decisions, maybe her fifth marriage can be her last and she can actually be be happy in a relationship. You know what? When you're saying that, Questions start going through my mind, not questions for you to answer, but more so for anyone to think about. So Mm -hmm. the thing is, if someone and no matter what it is, again, it goes back to doing the same thing over and expecting a different result. So if I'm constantly getting in a getting in a relationship and getting married and then getting divorced, then becoming what is this connected to? What is the underlying issue beneath this? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's you mentioned something that happened in her childhood and things that she's experienced in her early 20s. Now that she's aware of it, yet she still keeps making that decision. It's one thing to be aware and it's another thing to apply. Mm-hmm. What? And make the decision, uh, begin to make the decisions that will actually help you become healthy. And it's like looking for some people. I talk about this all the time on the podcast and say sometimes we're looking for things to fill voids. So we think if I just lose this weight, if I just get married, if I just have this baby, if I just get this house, if I just get this degree, if I just have this amount of money, everything will be better when that is not the case. And I'm going to keep drilling that in people's head because people (laughs) attach their value to things when things do not make you whole. The only thing that that will make you whole is going beneath the surface and addressing those things that you try to uh, suppress and try to cover with the material things. Because if those things made you better or made you whole, then after the quote unquote new car smell fade, you wouldn't be on to the next. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm always really trying to encourage people. That's why I'm really always pushing for therapy. Like, look, I have at least a good five people in my circle who started therapy because they know when they come to me, I'd be like, have you found a therapist? <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, I'd be like, oh, you, do you need me to help you find find you one? I'll help you. What, what's your insurance? Because I'll call and, and I'll also look online. I, I know a lot of resources that can help you find a therapist now. Um, and it's and it, I'm so amazed that like sometimes people don't like I remember I was talking to a friend and I was helping her find a therapist and she didn't know that insurance covered therapy. And I said, really? I was just surprised. I, I guess some people think that it's a luxury um, uh, and you have to pay for it out of pocket. Now, I do know that like with insurance, I believe. Correct me if, if I'm wrong. Don't you have to have with insurance or diagnoses for them to cover it? It depends on the depends on the service provider. Because QC Behavioral, for instance, here in the DC area, they have locations in Maryland and DC. 
they can work with your situation to help you get services, even if you don't have insurance. And what if you don't have a, because I thought like if you don't have a diagnosis, even, then you would, you have to pay out of pocket. Even if you don't have a diagnosis, because you have to start from somewhere. Oh, right. Because you may not even know that you have a diagnosis. Right. right? Mm-hmm. See, and so I remember explaining to her, I said, well, actually, your insurance um, does cover it. And I said, also, go to your job and talk about your um, EAP, because a lot of jobs have the employee assistance program and they will pay for a certain number of therapy services that are free of cost to you. Then you can transfer after you like, okay, this is a person I actually really like and I'm making progress with them. I like, I, you know, I feel like I have a connection with them. I believe I can make progress with them. Then um, your insurance could um, in some cases take over. And I even did an episode and I talked about like low cost and um, free therapy um, options and provided resources. But because I want everyone to know that um, it's certainly accessible but sometimes when we are in maybe the darkest spaces of our life we don't even have the energy to even try to look for for the resources and so when people reach out to me I always ask them that's one of the first questions I ask them well have you been to therapy have you talked to a therapist because I have made it clear that I am not a therapist nor do I want to be a therapist but I'm always willing to help point you in the direction to get you a therapist Um, and so because it goes back to therapy helps you with becoming self-aware. Very much so. Mm -hmm. Why you make the decisions that you make ultimately, like you said, why do you think the way that you think? Because a lot of times we think the way that we think and think that the things that we do is right because it's what's always been done in our family or it's what's it's the only thing that we've seen or the only thing that we've done, then like, yeah, that's right. But that don't that doesn't mean that. <laughs> I love your passion. I absolutely <laughs> adore it. <laughs> exactly. I think that but some people are afraid of facing themselves. Mm. Yeah. Some people are. Yeah, some people are. And I think even in terms of which, oh, which brings, which is so good because I remember in your book when you talked about how there was some, I think a guy who was dating one of your friends or somebody on campus and you had walked and you started experiencing like severe anxiety to the point where like you would start sweating or like profusely like in the middle of the night and like you couldn't sleep and you would like get up and go outside and this one particular time was it a 7-Eleven or like a convenience store you went to right something like that Mm -hmm. and then the guy was like like what are you like what are you like what are you doing out here at like 2 a.m in the morning and then even occurred to you in your mind like because when I was reading the book I was talking to you I was like girl what are you doing at 2 a.m like (laughs) Why are you walking out at 2 a.m. to go to the store? Like, do you know that this is unsafe? Um, So I I was like, and then like, uh, I think maybe like a few paragraphs after you mentioned like how it didn't even occur to you that this was not safe to do as like a woman. Like, because, because that was what you did because of, you know, that was, you felt safe 
like sleeping outside, you know, near um, near the school or at the school because of the abuse that you've experienced from your brother. And you were like, well, this is so this was is normal to me because I've ran out. I've ran outside and I've been outside and I slept outside throughout the night and I was safe. So maybe not at the time we didn't realize subconsciously like, oh, this is this is normal to me. So can you speak to and just share, I guess, something that you had to, you know, unlearn? I guess that's one thing due to the 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 abuse that you've experienced. And right. Um, and even how like your mother condoning his behavior impacted that. My brother was when he returned to the house at night, even though he was no longer living there whether I was sitting watching television or in my bed of sleep, and he began to beat on me. The only safety that I had in getting away was running out into the night because those events always happened around somewhere between one and three o'clock in the morning. So running out into the night, sleeping at the school, those things became a solace to me. And all of this happened like emotionally and psychologically, these were not decisions that I made. It's the same thing with a dessert becoming your favorite. You know, it's just, you taste it, you like it. The more you eat it, the more you like it. The more I ran out into, the the safer for me it became, the more safe it symbolized and felt to me. So a lot of times we think leaving the situation, we become safe, we become better that's the healing process getting away but it's not so when I went to college and I said I'm glad that I'm out of that situation even though I left physically emotionally I was still carrying the baggage so when I would wake up in the middle of the night around those same time between 1 a.m and 3 a.m in the morning I'd wake up breathing heavy sweating and I would begin to go through this list. Okay, I didn't have a bad dream. Nobody's chasing me or bothering me. I'm not worried about anything. It's not exam season. I couldn't ever identify anything specific that should initiate or trigger that kind of call, that, that type of response. One mm. particular night when I woke up at college, got up and went for a walk. And the coolness of the air just just being out and getting air, I began to feel better. So while I was out there, like I said in the book, I got thirsty. I went to walk to the to the store. And again, less than a mile. Less than a mile from the from the college. At the store, when I in the south we call them one stop. When I was leaving the one stop, it is like a 7-Eleven, little store, little uh, neighborhood convenience store. When I left the gas station, a guy reached for me and tried to pull me off into the woods that were adjacent to the store. But there was somebody pumping gas that said to him, you know, make a decision. Her or you? Like, is this worth it? Because if you harm her, then I'm going to harm you. And that's when he dropped my arm and and ran off. Now, the guy that was pumping the gas, in that moment, he looked familiar to me, but I didn't remember. I couldn't place him. I didn't remember exactly where I knew him from. (laughs) He told me to get into the vehicle. 
drove me back to the college. My mom contributed from the point of going back now to being a child and a teenager when my brother would beat on me. And I would tell my mother, her responses were, that's just how he is. Uh, This too shall pass. Uh, She would, a couple of times, she would just start singing and then turn her back to start doing something as if I wasn't even standing there. So with the lack of intervention from, like I said, the titles of of the people that were supposed to be the adults in my life, protect you i i put myself in danger because i'm thinking hey i'm thirsty the store is right up there on the corner i'll just walk to the store because for all those years i in the middle of the night had to get up and run to the school and even I remember the, the the guy who drove you back to the school. Didn't he say something like, "I bet not see you out walking outside again at this time" or something? He <laughs> said, "Don't let me catch you out here again." I mean, thank I, I God went, he was there. I went to undergrad, and I went to undergrad in a small town, small college. I was shocked that there was that much traffic and people at two o'clock in the morning. But later on, I figured out and realized it was because one of the local clubs had let out. Mm, okay. So, so he was coming from the club and and as a godsend, just, you know, happened to be in the right place at the right time so that no harm came to me. Yeah. And see, it's something like that that was going on, like, subconsciously that will cause you to wake up. Like you say, you're sweating and you're just like, what is going on? You know, like, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. There's nothing currently happening in my life, but it was something from your childhood. And you brought up a great point about you thought because you left the situation that, oh, you know, everything's fine. I'm, you know, I don't got to worry about it anymore. But emotionally, I, you were still carrying that baggage. And I'm like, oh my gosh, speaking to my life, because that was Like, I was like, I'm leaving out of New Jersey. I'm not staying here. I don't care if I got to take out student loans. I'm getting the heck out of here. Like, Uh New Jersey represents, like, you know, the childhood trauma and the things that I saw. And, like, I I mean, I go there to visit, but to live, to go back and to live there is like, oh, no, that is not happening. And so I was like, I have to get out of here. So... I left thinking like, thank God. I remember just in middle school talking to my amazing guidance counselor who I still text to this day. And I remember talking to him and just telling him, you know, some of the things that was going on in the house. And I'm thankful that he never reported it to social services, but um, I guess it could have been a good thing, but it also could have been a bad thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But he, he, um, I remember you know, him, you know, always being there to encourage me and, you know, saying like, you, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to be leaving soon. You'll be, you know, off to college and, you know, always trying to reassure me and encourage me, but not realizing at the time that 
then I was still carrying all this bad baggage. When you think about the anxiety, yeah, my, I realized becoming self-aware that the anxiety was rooted in not knowing when my mom was going to be abused. Like it wasn't right. like my mom was abused every single night. It could happen right. for instance today and it may not happen mm-hmm. to six months later. Um, well, mm-hmm. at least the physical part, I didn't see a lot of, uh, of the verbal happen more frequently. Um, so I didn't know, for, even with my dad being in and out of jail, not knowing when I would see my dad. So then, you know, getting diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, I'm like, I don't even know what that is. And I don't even know what you're talking about. I do not have whatever that thing is that you said I have. So, but not realizing like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, I do literally worry about every single thing. Like there's not one thing I don't worry about. And I remember someone, one of my friends telling me, if you're like, Takiya, you worry too much. And I'm like, what is she talking about? Like, I don't know what she's talking about. At 13, like I worry about everything. But yeah, it wasn't like, oh, I became, I left the house and then in college and in my early 20s, like, yeah, I was just, this anxiety came out of nowhere. No, it was rooted there. And through therapy, I, I figured out, oh, that's why, because I never knew, I, I never knew like what I was going to get in the household. It was very unpredictable. And mm-hmm. now by becoming, and then to the point where that's why for me, i like became I, I, I'll say what it is. I potentially became a workaholic. I just did everything. Like I just, you know, I, um, I work, I just, I, you know, lost myself in schoolwork. Um, I've joined so many different extracurricular activities, even in high school. Like I was very, very focused. And in high school, I didn't graduate with the best grades. Um, I think I may have had like a Two a 2.8 I graduated with, um, but it, that was a hard work in 2.8 um, because I took a lot of honors and AP classes and I always, I had people in my circle who saying like, yes, she struggled, but we see that she's all about challenging herself. And so when I got to high school, um, to college, it was like, I literally just soared academically because I had people who were encouraging me and believed in me. But at the same time, I realized that if I involved myself in so many different things, then one, not only did it lead to my detriment as far as like burnout, but then that meant that if I was involved in all these things, I didn't have to deal with myself. I didn't have to sit with the fact that when I would have, you know, suicidal thoughts or um, I didn't have to sit with anything that made me uncomfortable. I would just get involved in 50,000 things. And that was how I dealt with it. And then as I left college and grad school, not realizing like, girl, this is why you're, you're doing too much, you know? But I was like, no, I can't because then if I sit still, what does that mean? I have to sit with my stuff and I don't want to sit with it. So I think, you know, it's in a sense that, you know, people just become so immune to abuse and dysfunction. So what are, Two steps that you can share with someone to become aware of unhealthy thoughts and behaviors. The first step would be to start journaling. And not just general journaling where you're writing down how you feel and what you think or what your hopes and dreams are. But even if you just keep a piece of paper with you or a stack of 
her post-it stickies. And it, and every time you make a decision, write down why you made that decision. You're in a store and you're shopping and you choose the red blouse over the yellow blouse. You buy it, you get in the car, write down why you chose, what memory comes up. How does, how does one color over the other color make you feel? Is it Because it could be attached to an outfit that you had some years back. It could be attached to a compliment that somebody gave you. It could be that you don't wear a certain color or smells also. You don't like a certain cologne because it reminds you of a person that abused you when you were younger. Begin to write down every decision that you make and why you made that decision. The second step would be to then once a week or every two weeks at the latest, sit down with that list and see how far out you can take it. When I say how far out, how many paragraphs can you add to that? I chose the red blouse over the green blouse because the longer you write, the closer you will get to what the actual region is. And it's not just, well, I like this color better than that one. Even something as simple as coffee over tea. Why? Well, tea was served more than coffee in my household. Or the smell of coffee reminds me of a traumatic situation that I witnessed when I was younger. The more you write about the decision that you made, the deeper you go. And if you're, if you're fighting the process, if, if you don't go deeper as you continue to write these paragraphs, then it's not worth you doing it. Because if you're going to fight yourself for your, to stop your own healing, there's no point in you, you even starting that process. But those are, those are two things, and they're, they're piggyback, they're very connected, that, you, that a person can do to start to become more self-aware. Those are great things. Um, and I would even just add to that, when you start that process on your own, Take it, challenge yourself and take it a step further and bring, start going to therapy and, and then explore that with the therapist. Um, because y'all know I'm always going to tell y'all to go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I knew that was good. I knew that was going to come. That's why I did not include it as one of those steps. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think but I think it's a great starting point, though, for like to start it on your own, um, because if you do that. Then you're like halfway, halfway, halfway worked through a lot of things. And then just to have someone there to coach you and to challenge you um, and to counsel you to think even more outside of that, because there are a lot of sometimes there's blind spots that we don't even know. Just like you have a blind spot when you're driving Mm -hmm. and you don't see cars coming. We have blind spots. There's things about ourselves that we don't know. But it will take someone else calling it to our attention. And sometimes even the thing is 
sometimes what is that one thing that people always say about about you and you're like, oh no, that's not true. Um, and you find that a lot of people are saying it. Of course you want to challenge it because just because they're saying it doesn't mean it's true. But then there's instances sometimes where people are saying it and it's true because they want to help you, but we don't want to receive it. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. I have a, a relative who always says everyone else is a problem. She's never the problem. It's never her. It's always everyone else. And it's like, no, you're the common denominator. It's you. But a lot of people don't don't realize that. And so before we wrap up, I have to ask you what led you to start your show, That Anita Life. I started the show, well, initially I started on Periscope interviewing friends of mine that needed content for their website. I'd just been exposed to the entrepreneurial space mm-hmm. and I didn't know what my it was. I didn't know what I should start a business doing. I knew I wasn't crafty. I had no idea. So so that friends of mine would have con you know, nobody wants to sit there and talk to themselves about themselves for an hour. And when you're just starting, whether it's Periscope or Facebook Live, nobody's watching. So in order to give them video for their website, I interviewed them. As I started interviewing them, one, I became more interested in interviewing people. And two, I I got compliments. You know, Anish, you're pretty pretty good at this. You're pretty good at asking thought-provoking questions, not just surface questions. As I began to interview more people and share more content, people liked it. They liked the type of content because mental health is something that it still has a very heavy stigma to it. And by getting this out in the opening, interviewing people about their successes with mental health, then it helps more people know that there is another side. That if you put in the work, you can be happy. If you put in the work, you can heal. It's a lot of tough decisions and it's a lot of tough self-reflection, but it's worth it in the end. Mm, yeah. I think I think what you're doing with your show is just great to open that conversation to emotional healing um, from so many different areas. Like, and you don't just interview therapists, um, you know, you into interview people from like all different walks of life. And ultimately those things impact our mental health. And so like what my goal is not to just, you know, the podcast, I talk to a lot of people who've battled mental illness or was maybe the caregiver of a person um, or, you know, watched a loved one go through with the mental illness. But the other part of my mission is normalizing the mental health conversation. And by showing people how everything literally impacts our mental health. It's sometimes the smallest thing and we don't even realize it, but I'm like, everything truly does start and end with our mental and emotional health. And so down to our finances, which is a whole nother conversation, but like the relationship that we have with money. And it's so many things that people don't realize um, is connected to their mental health. So, and I have to get you to just share your website and your social media handles for anyone who wants to 
connect with you or interested in um, learning more about the show or maybe being a guest on the show, all that good stuff. Website is thatanitalive.com. That's that, T-H-A-T-A-N-I-T-A-L-I-V-E.com. And the same thing on all social media platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All my handles are that Anita Live. You're so awesome. Thank you so much, Anita. I really enjoyed speaking (laughs) with you. you. And thank you for sharing your platform with me. All right, you guys. So that wraps up another episode of the Fireflies Unite podcast. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen because, y'all, I know there are thousands of other podcasts that you could be, be listening to. But the fact that you choose to make, but the fact that you choose to let Fireflies be one of the podcasts that you listen to, I'm extremely, extremely grateful, you all. My words cannot thank you enough. I'm very appreciative. Thank you to every person who has reached out to me to let me know how the podcast has impacted them or how my trans or how my transparency and vulnerability has impacted you. I just hope that by me working on myself and getting to this place of wholeness, that it encourages you to do the same and to make your mental and emotional health a priority and just your health overall. Um, Because as you all know, I have been really working on my health just from everything spiritual mentally emotionally physically to making sure that i can truly carry out the vision that god has given me for the mental health community and so you all have a very blessed week and i will talk to you next week i hope that you obtain tools and resources from the fireflies unite podcast to help you manage your mental health but please do not use it as a substitute for a relationship with a licensed therapist or psychiatrist. Let's continue the conversation by following me on Fireflies Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.